metaphor for you about causality and the path. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. But it, just keep in mind. The chances of ripening a mango in a freezer are very slim. So if you want to uh, awaken with the wrong causal conditions, uh, it's futile. So teachers are around to help people not put the mango in the freezer. The, if the causal conditions are not appropriate for liberation, it doesn't happen. And so when I say people are trying to be acausal, I mean that they're actually sticking the mango in the freezer, hoping that it's going to ripen. And it won't. And they're going to be very surprised that it doesn't ripen. It's kind of like having really good cheese, a beautiful camembert or brie, and you stuck it in the refrigerator and you take it out and you eat it. It's really not how brie was ever intended. And the poor farmer or the cheesemaker would probably be quite shocked uh, to see you doing that with cheese. We do that in the Western world, but in, the, in, the, in North America. But in Europe, that would be like, you know, it's not ripe. It hasn't, it hasn't ripened. It hasn't, you haven't brought out its full flavors. So that's a lot of what we're trying to do in life. It doesn't matter what we're doing. Um, you know, I, I can go a long way bicycling by thinking about bicycling. A long way, actually. You can actually build some muscle tissue just by thinking uh, about a, tw- a good, hard half an hour ride. But it's not quite the same. You know what I mean? We can, we can think about liberation, but we actually have to uh, provide the uh, appropriate conditions for it to ripen. Uh, <laughs> that's about the best I could do. A mango in a freezer. Kind of what we do. I have a suggestion for you. This beautiful book, which is not available. How's that for a start? I have a book I really want you to read, and it's not in print. It's a bit like the mango in the freezer, isn't it? Uh, Anyways, this is a book of tens of tens of tens of suggestions of, of advice. And Gampopa, who lived... When did he die? Maybe, oh, I don't know, 1092, something like that. This is the collection of personal advice of his teacher, from his teacher, from his teacher, from his teacher, from two different traditions, from his great Vajrana master, Milarepa, and advice that came through his teachers from the lineage of Atisha. So it's a collection um, of advice of how to actually become enlightened. For instance, what a saint is. It actually has in here. You can actually read the ten things that define a saint. There are ten ways to do yourself a kindness. There are ten ways to destroy yourself. There are ten useless things. 
They're just two liners, three liners. There are 11 signs of sublime personage, a holy being. There are 12 indispensable things. 18 errors of spiritual practitioner. You don't want to hear those. Nah. 14 things which are meaningless. 10 things which are unmistaken. 10 things which are easily mistaken. 10 ways to go astray. 10 things to inspire yourself. 10 things to persevere in. And so on and so on. This book is like platinum. And you can't have it. <laughs> you know, it's 10.30 and I think my glue is uh, It's available uh, online as a PDF. We've, we've actually asked them if they re- reprint it because I'm, I'm sure from all the retreats, all the people I recommend, it would be, it'd be a lot, of, hundreds of copies. Uh, there are other trans- this is a, one translation which is superb okay maybe maybe Cheryl can write it out and put it somewhere this is a superb translation by one of my favorite translators Eric Pema Kunzai and there are other translations and other commentaries out there uh, this one which has lots of commentary by, by a great teacher Kempo Kathar Rinpoche uh, is, is a bit more recent and it has a translation and has commentary in it. Um, so that's, that's in print right now. But I like these little books. I like the little book. Because the book you can uh, slip in your back pocket, you can take in your briefcase, you can take to work and say, I, in Wise and Retreat, I would read uh, one of these sections, 10 of this or 12 of that, after breakfast every morning, and keep that in mind, saying, this is, how am I doing? And it was so deep, I went, this is such, a, such an amazing book. So I recommend, if you want guidance, and you actually want to identify where things are going wrong, uh, out of literally over a thousand years of dedicated great teachers have put this together. So he's summarizing the very best advice he ever received, and said, if you want to meet me, this is like meeting me. And he was considered to be one of the greatest, greatest enlightened beings that Tibet has ever, ever, ever produced. Fantastic. Uh, there's different titles depending on the translation. This was called The Precious Garland of the Supreme Path. Garland is like a, a string of pearls. Garland. Or a garland of flowers. By Gampopa. So this, this, you can find this. This one is by uh, Rangjung Yeshe translated by Eric Pema Kunzang, and it is available as a PDF uh, online for use. And it also gives you an idea, if you're, if you're looking for a teacher, it expels out exactly what the qualities of a spiritual teacher is, the qualities of a, of a guru, qualities of a lama. Um, if they have these qualities, run. If they have these qualities, very good. And, and where you are, you just look at it and go, okay, uh, I need help with that. Things like this, beautiful things not to be rejected. Don't reject sickness and suffering since they are your spiritual friends. Don't reject enemies and obstructions since they are inspiration for your, your innate nature.
Don't reject thoughts since they're the play of your innate nature. Don't reject disturbing emotions when they are, the, they are reminders of wisdom. It's extremely deep. What do we do? We, we, we are scared of emotional states. See them for what they are. Just play of light. Just a brain and a body making little plays of light. Oh, here's one. You need to follow the words of a sublime master with trust and exertion. Okay, that was, that was good. So now, with trust and exertion, we come to the question of devotion. Tonight, by the way, is about refuge. This, is, this has all been about refuge. When I, say, when I say, what are we devoted to? Where are we doing our training? This is the point of taking refuge. If we are on a rocky ocean, a really rough ocean, it could be Georgia Strait, it could be Trichomalee Channel, not usually, but Georgia Strait, out in the Pacific. Anybody been in those, like a, maybe a 4, 7, 8 gale? No? Where do you take refuge from the storm? So if one's in a stormy existence, where does one actually take sustenance that's going to clear that up? If you're on a difficult, rough ocean, who do you place your trust in if you're on a ship? Ever been on a cruise ship? Ever been on a boat? Who would you trust? The captain. You hope that the captain can get you across the water, yes? So too, in the Dharma, you want to take refuge away from the stormy sea, and you may found at the age of 17, at the age of 20, at the age of 25, at the age of 30, at the age of 40, at the age of 50, at the age of 60, at the age of 70, at the age of 80, at the age of 90, that, that many of the things that you've done in life have not gotten you across the ocean. Does this make sense? It just hasn't worked. You might, for instance, be more comfortable because you've got your retirement savings. You may be more comfortable because you've got now got um, your good health. But actually, it hasn't led to liberation. And it hasn't taken you across the stormy ocean. This is the purpose of Dharma. It's the purpose of the teacher. It's the purpose of the Dharma. And it's, pr- and it's the purpose of the Sangha, which is a community of beings who've experienced liberation. The main thing that's in the way of crossing the ocean or crossing the turbulent stream is simply where the devotion is placed. That means where the time and the heart commitment is placed. And I'm not suggesting you give up on your children, okay? You know, say, I'm really worried. No, 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 no. It's where the thrust of your being is heading every day. That's why this is so precious. This is one of the greatest texts I've ever, ever come across. There's a few of them where I go, oh my goodness, it's glorious. And of course, the teaching of Lojong. She was a great master, great master of the teaching of Lojong. It's a rough ride at times, yes? and bewildering and confusing. You need a really good captain 
but we also live in a time today, all of us, not all of us, most of us, where we have a huge level of distrust for any kind of tradition, of any kind of religion, of any kind of authority figure. Yeah, is that correct? And we distrust it. There's got to be something wrong, because there's lots of examples of where it is wrong. But what we don't do is we don't know the examples where actually it is right. So we throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know the baby out with the bathwater? You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Not in a million years do you throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is a tough one for, for Westerners. They're devoted, but they're not devoted necessarily to the things that are actually going to deliver them deliberation. You know, anybody ever practice archery? You've heard about Zen, Zen, Zen archers and so on, people using archery as a practice for liberation. Or yoga, yes? Or qigong. Or running. Hmm? Tennis. Tennis, tennis. They may be good for some things, but they don't necessarily deliver you across the ocean to liberation. Make sense? The technique, the tool, is not it. The technique and tool is a support. Yoga is a support. But I love yoga, by the way. Chi Kung, love you, Chi Kung, is a support. It's not liberation. Kind of where I am tonight, sort of when I get back to devotion. You can be utterly devoted to archery, but without the view of why you're practicing archery, for spiritual purposes, it doesn't lead to liberation. The technique doesn't lead to liberation. Never has, never will. You might feel better, yes? You might breathe better. You might have a more energetic, flexible body, but it's not liberation. A flexible body, a healthy body, is not liberation. A sick body is not liberation. The mind, resplendent knowing mind, and the nature of existence, of what this is, is liberation. All these things are support. Does it make sense? They're support. So it comes down to what we're devoted to is how we travel through the world. What we're devoted to is where we place our energies. And devotion is, for many people today, a dirty word. It's suspect. But everybody's devoted. We are a culture of passionate, devoted individuals to what? A cult. I'm kind of happy this is being taped. Maybe we'll get it. You know. To what? Chasing after objects for happiness. It's a happiness culture. Because we have a lot of money to do that. All of us. Even if you're on welfare, you have a lot of money to simply pursue objects to bring about temporary moments of happiness. I mean, 
I was explaining the other day, what do you think Apple's doing right now? They have to come up with a new product to redesign the product from last year. They'll lose market share. And it's got to look better. It's got to turn you on. I know someone who once bought a, um, an eye, a little small thing, eye, iPod. Bought a little iPod. I said, why'd you get a new one? You had one from last year. That is so much more beautiful. Does your last one work well? Beautifully. That one's just, God, oh, the design. This is, a, this is a fine being, but I'm not putting the being down. I'm just saying that is a display of how our bewilderment is. By the way, I'm not saying don't get a new one. By the way, that's not the problem. It's just simply not knowing what we're doing. So we're not looking for liberation. We're looking for moments of happiness. That doesn't lead to liberation. And that, by the way, that iPod could have Dharma teachings on it. could be incredible. I'm going to read to you uh, beautiful, beautiful teachings out of a book that you can't read. It is available. But actually, I'd, I'd like you to receive the, the, um, uh, the empowerments and the, um, the pith instructions before you start that. That's, that's uh, this coming month on Galliano is, is this. But. There's a section. This, this book is called The Outer and Inner Preliminaries of the Zogchen Tradition. It's of a particular tradition in Zogchen, uh, great perfection, called the Kandro Nitig. And the Kandro Nitig is considered one of the great core uh, teachings, uh, revelations of the uh, Zogchen tradition. And this is um, one of the only commentaries uh, written in the 17th century by the third Ponlop Rinpoche, great practitioner, that summarizes the outer and inner practices with commentary of the Kandra Nitik, which is a, um, a truly awesome uh, path of, of liberation. So faith. The particular teaching that concerns us here involves the great importance of contemplating the nature of faith. Contemplating the nature of faith. Now, the word for faith in Sanskrit is sadha. Uh, or in Pali, actually, shrad, in Sanskrit, I think it's shradha. Uh, but in Pali, it's, I think it's, it's sadha. That word is sometimes translated as faith, trust, devotion. But actually, if you study the commentaries, it is almost always translated in the Southeast Asian tradition as confidence. So the word trust is a word that you, from the Southeast Asian tradition, is trust, true trust, not phony trust. True trust is based on a level of unmistaken confidence, not blind belief. And the history of Buddha Dharma, history of Buddhism, has been from the Buddha's time clearly stated a tradition of not blind belief. It's a tradition of understanding intellectually and experientially. Otherwise, as the Buddha said, just because I am the Buddha, just because I'm an enlightened being, or I have that title, don't believe what I say. And then he said, don't believe your elders. 
Doesn't mean you don't trust your elders. Doesn't mean you don't have confidence. But you have to find out if it's true. That's real devotion. Wanting to know if it's true by practicing and study, that's real devotion. Okay, so now from the, from the uh, Vajrayana and the Tibetan tradition. So here it is here. The particular teaching that concerns us here involves the great importance of contemplating the nature of faith. Dash. The root of all dharmas. Dash. Shall I repeat that? The root of all dharmas. And progressing along the path having done so. Then he quotes from a, a text called The Jewel Garland. States, quote, Due to faith, one practices the dharma. And due to knowledge, one truly knows. One doesn't engage in the path of dharma unless one has confidence. One has faith that actually it makes sense and is a worthy pursuit. The real trust, the real confidence comes through knowledge. That's insight. He means wisdom insight. Of these two, knowledge is paramount, while faith is a prerequisite. No confidence, we don't do anything. Make sense? That's why Cheryl teaches. Should I, should I tell you why Cheryl teaches? Why I asked her to teach? Because it builds people's confidence. You have to gain the knowledge, the wisdom. She is there, or I'm there, to inspire or help you with confidence and pull away the doubt. That's the work of a teacher. It's removing fear. It says right in the Tantra text, a guru removes fear. That's their rule. They remove being's fear. But I, but I, it's okay. But I, but I, it's okay. Uh, no, I can't. Yes, you can. It's mostly what a teacher does. I, I couldn't. Yes, you can. I shouldn't. Yes, you can. I won't. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> Eventually you will. Whether it's today or tomorrow, you will. Another text called The Heap of Jewels says, quote, For those without faith, positive qualities do not occur, just as a green sprout won't bud from a seed burnt by a fire. Well, except for fur. Fur seeds. They need a fire. And then another, another text, the Supreme Continuum says, The innate ultimate, that is the nature of Buddhahood, is realized through faith. Okay, here's something that, that I don't know if you've ever heard before. It's lovely. Now we will go into more detail about the nature of faith. In essence, that means at the very root, faith is an extremely lucid state of mind, period. Faith is an extremely lucid state of mind. Not dull, not dim, not stupid, not blind, lucidity. The more lucid the mind, the greater the confidence. Not the other way around. It is a state of mind that engages an object that should be taken up or rejected by either engaging or turning away. That means confidence is knowing that you either engage with the object or the teaching or somebody, or you go, no. no. Like food. Do you have foods that you go, no? Do you have certain things you've experienced to go, nope, with utter confidence, nope, 
Nope, not for this being. Have you had that? Just that kind of, nope. Nope. Comes from years and years of knowledge. Nope. Nope. The various, and, and as uh, it says in many, many um, high practice texts, the ability to accept or reject, to know what needs to be accepted and what needs to be rejected is the basis of the path because you simply can't walk very far until you discern what is wholesome and what is unwholesome for your being and other beings. That's confidence. That's great confidence. The various types of faith are discussed in the following quote from the precious wish-fulfilling treasury, another text. And the third pawn, La Rinpoche, uh, uh, quotes this, quote, with inspired faith, one either takes up or rejects causes and results. With inspired faith, one is able to discern the causes and results that lead to awakening and that which leads to stagnancy or no go ism Or even backward sliding, which is, which is a very, very um, difficult state to be in. With interested faith, the mind earnestly engages the supreme object. What's the supreme object? Bodhicitta, enlightenment mind. When one has interested faith, one's really engaged in what one needs to do, which is liberation. And what they mean here is they, they don't just mean liberation for you. They mean liberation for all beings. With respectful faith, one is perfectly conscientious. One cares for oneself and one cares for beings. That's also faith. This is beautiful, eh? This is a beautiful teaching of all the aspects of devotion and faith. If you're truly a devotional being, you will care for your, your own being and you'll actually care and nourish others. With lucid faith, the mind beholds qualities with total lucidity. Beautiful statement. With the faith of conviction, doubts about the Dharma come to an end. With the faith of mental certainty, one has great faith in the supreme dharmas of study, contemplation, and meditation. The, the, the thing that gets most practitioners Dharma is is lack of faith, is doubt. Is those seeds of doubt that rise and retreat, or any time, that chip away at, what am I doing this for? What am I doing this for? There are six kinds of faith. There is inspired faith, interested faith, respectful faith, lucid faith, the faith of conviction, and the faith of mental certainty. And then he quotes another text, uh, the Jewel Lamp Sutra, Developing faith is a prerequisite like a mother. It safeguards all positive qualities and causes them to develop. It clears away doubt and delivers, the, delivers one from the stream of the rapids. That's what they mean. Faith is what characterizes the city of happiness and goodness. 
Faith also eliminates pride and the root and is the root of respect. When you actually have confidence about life, life. By the way, that's the four four foundations, the four common foundations I outline is life. What is life? Clarifying life is confidence. That means, and I kind of like from Christian Murdy, have you all heard of Christian Murdy? No, some of you. Look at everything that you're holding as a belief and challenge it. Just challenge it. Is it true? Even what I'm saying. How, are you, how would you, how, if you were to give this being honor, how would I like you to give me honor? By three prostrations? No. How? How would you give a, a teacher, a Dharma teacher, the honor? Or let's, let's, let's say it's not a Dharma teacher. It's a, a, you're a chemistry professor. How would you do that? How would you give honor to that person? Question? Yeah, what else? Pardon? What do you have to do first? Experiment. Experiment. Thank you. Embody it. Learn it. Study. Contemplate it. Take the text. Read it five times. Underline it. Question. Debate. And go to the lab. What's the lab? In Dharma? Yep. The mind. Where? In retreat in the space that is a nourishing space to unfold our rich uh, understanding. That would give honor. And if you go to your chemistry teacher or your math teacher or your biology teacher and you say, you know, I just performed five experiments on that, uh, whatever you said, and I've read it five times and I have a a major concern about something, they would go, I want to hear that. But if you said, you know, I thought about it for about 10 seconds. Uh, and I actually I thought about it. I read it once and I thought about it. They'd say, you know what? Go away. But if they're polite, they'd say, okay. But that, that's the kind of level of... Hmm. If you want to do honor, you delve in. How do you delve in? Not by thinking. Not just by asking questions. You go and you practice. Give honor. Give honor. Give honor to yourself. What do you do? You practice being a really fine human being. You know, if, you, if we do that and we practice being a really fine human being, we're caring for ourselves, we're caring for others, and I tell you, I'm going to guarantee, you're going to feel so satisfied. Faith eliminates pride and is the, re- is the root of respect. Faith gathers in basic virtues as if by a hand. It's like actually reaching for real. With persistent conscientiousness, restrain the sense gates, calm your mind, and safeguard the minds of others as well. Lucid faith is directed towards the positive qualities of one's teachers. With great faith in these objects, one has, and they're calling these teachers objects, with great faith in these objects, one has a sense of clear delight while at the same time remaining untainted 
by guile or deceit. Lucid refers to this type of vivid presence. Do you ever think of faith as vivid presence? Vivid presence. Clear, knowing confidence. I think it's a little more technical. And has to do with the relative side, the apparent side, and that which concerns virtue related to the ultimate knowledge and that which concerns the union of these two. It quite, gets quite uh, complex. So here, here's the sign that actually faith is uh, manifest. A sign that this form of faith has taken root, that is lucid faith, one will take great delight in virtuous endeavors and no longer become involved with negativity, whether physically, mentally, or verbally. That's a sign. Straightforward, isn't it? If you keep doing things that are negative, wasting time, ruining your body, ruining others, harming, uh, being gray and neutral, which is harm, uh, then, then confidence in, in emerging uh, liberation hasn't taken place. Faith creates great joy in the teachings of the victorious ones. Faith is what characterizes the city of happiness and goodness. Faith pervades all positive qualities and wisdoms. And now you see I've got some real highlighted areas here. Ready? Faith also involves conviction in the causes and results of samsara, that is wandering in existence, as factors that need to be eliminated and the causes and results of nirvana, freedom, as factors that need to be taken up. Isn't that straightforward? Lucid confidence is knowing what to get rid of and what to train in. It's right there. That's confidence. It's like cleaning at your closet. These clothes are no good. These books are actually, unho- you know, whatever it is. Get, get rid of it. Take up the good. That's what it means. With the faith of conviction, one is also convinced of the pointlessness of neutral activity. Go nowhereism is one of the worst. Engaging in virtue in this way is like engaging in farm work with the conviction that one will be able to reap the harvest of one's labors the following fall. And I think one more. Ah, two more. Another quote. Uh, By nature, faith is is like the fertile earth, its basis for all positive qualities, and is what causes the accumulation of virtue to develop. Like a ship, faith delivers one from the ocean of existence, like an escort, it protects one from the demons and afflictions. Like a mount, it means a mount on a horse, it takes one to the, next, the sanctuary of liberation. Like the king of gems, it fulfills all wishes. Like a warrior, it overcomes all those with ill intent. It is the supreme treasure of all the sacred accumulations. Accumulations. So that's, gonna, that's my next topic before we break for lunch. So I'm, I'm getting there. Merit. How do we gain the strength for the path? He's describing how to do it. The accumulation 
of a treasure is how we do it. Like the fresh seed, faith causes qualities to grow in the field of enlightenment. With faith, we seek out the qualities that are innate in our being. Oh my, goes on. I think that's plenty. Let's see here. Here's a line. This is, this is quite lovely. What we refer to as having faith means having faith in that which is superior, not faith in that which is inferior and causes muddying of the waters. Straightforward. That's, that's completely contrary to the tradition of liberation. There, you know, within, Buddhist, within the Buddhist tradition, within Buddhism, of what, is about a million, a billion Buddhists, something like, or no, three, three quarters of, of, a, of a billion Buddhists, there probably is a greater majority of blind faith Buddhists. But it's not, it's actually not the tradition of the Buddha, but they are Buddhists. They, in other words, they would call themselves Buddhists, they were born as Buddhists, and they pray and so on. But actually the tradition is very clear on this. Lucid faith is confidence built by discernment. But that, that is not an intellectual, that's not only an intellectual faith, it's a faith in your physiology that knows that it's leading to an awake mind. It's leading to unfolding. And that's constantly tested. So if it's not tested, it's blind. And that's why we have a teacher or teachers. It's the testing that builds confidence. That's right. We want to be tested in all ways and all situations to see if what we're on about and what we believe in is actually leading to liberation or it's a game. Yes, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. That's where the... Yes, but actually, uh, in that sense, uh, the only thing that isn't impermanent is innate mind. Innate mind. mind. Mind is permanent. The states of mind are not. The stories aren't. I'm not talking about awareness either here, by the way. I'm talking about innate mind in its pristine, radiant quality. That's the ultimate faith. But that has to be found. That's the, 
that's the beauty about faith. When it's been found, it's unmistakable. And you don't even need to say a, a word. But it's not blind. Because a lot of work has been done. A lot of work. You just have to, you have to find out. I, you know, it doesn't matter. You have to find out which tradition you're comfortable in. This is a matter of lineage. Which lineage of teaching are you comfortable in? And then engage. And within every tradition, including Buddhism, there are charlatans. Within every tradition of every religion, whether it's corporate religion, which I'm not denigrating, uh, whether it is religious corporatism, any kind of religion or belief system has its charlatans and people that expect you to have blind faith. So as I said, if you gave me honor or gave this tradition honor, I want you to do the work. And if you challenge me, I want it based on work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dogmatic means I'm going to hold the belief. The best thing you can do, the best thing a teacher can do for you in the Dharma is keep removing the beliefs even around Dharma. Why? It moves you along in order you're holding to it. Like the person that says, you know, you know, oh, who are you? Oh, I'm a Zogchen practitioner, or I'm a Karma Kagyu, or I'm a this or a that. Great. Wipe it away. Even eventually, uh, to say, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, wipe it away. You're a human being. So we, we hold support as long as we need it. And then we remove the support and see if the, if the being can handle it naturally. Does this make sense? You know training wheels for a bicycle? Would you ask someone to ride a bicycle without, tra- without any training? How about a motorcycle? Do you see what I'm talking about? So we put on trainings and then remove the training wheels. We put on a new set of training wheels, remove the training wheels. Until eventually we take all the training wheels away and the mind can rest in Dharma, which is the natural state of mind. Yeah, some people didn't. No training. I know, and some people didn't. Major- a lot of people don't. So it was discovered, because I used to be a swimming instructor, it was discovered that actually a better way is progressive system, because some people just... So for instance, there are people in this room, if I give pointing out instructions about the nature of mind, will actually get it. But they'll lose it five seconds later. Or they'll walk out the door and go, what was that? So it's been found over thousands of years, just like swimming, swimming instruction, that the vast majority of beings are progressive, which means step by step by step, that when you come to teach butterfly, you can really do it. Or, or you know, um, size stroke. Um, it is, for most of us, 99% of us, it's progressive and it needs to be taught that way. And if it if it isn't, it has holes. You know, there's holes, and they, they need to be patched. Yeah. Um, are you saying essentially that if we make ethical choices in our life, that leads to happiness, but it is certainly not liberation, but it may lead to liberation, it per- which is essentially recognition. 
restoration of our Buddha mind. Yes. Which yes. Update another story. I'm sure. That's right. Song. No, it's a very good point. The if the the ethics by itself is good, but not the total story. It's the support as a prerequisite. Why? Because unethical behavior leaves disturbances in the mind for oneself and others. So if it's not cleared up, they come back and they, they create doubt, they create uncertainty, they create results. For instance, even to the point where um, that unethical behavior may lead to financial ruin and you can't actually practice Dharma anymore for years. Or ill health. Do you, do you see that it's cause and, result, cause and effect? So ethical behavior is for you and other beings. It provides the base by which one can practice. If you were to actually follow all the precepts, the five precepts, the tantric precepts, uh, all these different laundry lists, and actually learn them and embody them, the awakening would be extraordinary. It's that powerful. But actually, it still need to penetrate the nature of mind. And that means great concentration of seeing into what's happening. But we need an ethically undisturbed field to do that. And that brings me to the last and final point for this morning. Okay. So any, any more questions about faith? This is a tough one for Westerners. Well, I'm going to tell you why. This is, should we talk about the psychological side? Faith for most Westerners is the fear of um, submission to somebody else or something where you lose control. That's what it is. We don't want submission. We want surrender. If a being doesn't surrender their ego, their ego formations, that is the clingy side of the ego, not the ego, we're not destroying the ego, the clingy, sticky, unwholesome side of the ego, which is very deep and very clever, then we have no surrender. Do you follow? And surrender is not the same as submitting to another being or a higher authority. The teaching of Dharma is not about submission. It's about surrendering that which is unwholesome and in the way. That makes sense. Mm. It's logical. But it's a difficult psychological point for Westerners. They do not want to... Now, there's other Westerners who are so happy to submit blindly. That's their happiness. But it doesn't have to be deliberation. That's the fear. Your, your fear is that you are concerned that you're going to submit and lose your ego control. What you want to do is you want to surrender all that is in the way from pristine, lucid, compassionate awareness. That's it. And we need help for that. That's called taking refuge. There. Now, tonight's class is done. In essence. I have to fill in some. Yes? I was just wondering if you have to label yourself as a Buddhist to have complete faith in the Dharma. It helps. And I'll, I'll tell you why. The support 
of the beginning, the middle, the middle, and then the more middle is so essential. And we need to use labels of conceptual contrivance, thank you for that, to, to help us gain the strength we need to eventually let it all go. Where we don't have to say we're a Buddhist. I mean, the Buddha didn't walk around saying I'm a Buddhist. But he did, he did bring about a lot of support for his students, right? The five precepts, then the eight precepts, then the ten precepts of a, of a novice monk, and then the 256 precepts, did you see? And the 300 for a, a female nun. Those are all support. Westerners don't want to have a lot of support. They think they can jump over all the support. How many people have ever taken chemistry at university? Was first year chemistry tough? Would it, be, would it have been tough without calculus? I found it difficult because I, I skipped over. So I was in your, you know, at an early age, but I found that difficult because I didn't have the calculus. So thermodynamics was tough. So Zogchen's like thermodynamics. It's like using, you know, you need the differential equations. This, this, this teaching here, of this Zogchen, you need differential equations. It's going to be tough to leap over. So we need support, and Westerners think that that support is submission. This is what I'm going to explain tonight. That that figure there is threatening. That, you know that little Buddha figure there? For a lot of Westerners, that's threatening. You know that wearing a robe, people have told me it's threatening? They actually feel uncomfortable because I'm wearing a robe. So now I wear a robe all. That's good. Get, you know, if, you're, if, it's that, if that's problematic, then go. Go, go somewhere else. I'm, you know, as, a, as a label, as a figment of imagination, uh, it's useful for me to say and be accorded the title, a Buddhist Lama. That's actually out of compassion. One of my teachers, His Eminence Chobi Rinpoche, who was a teacher of, of the Dalai Lama before he you know, passed away, said to me one day, I went to visit, and, and um, just to see, to be with him, said to me one day, he was 80, 84 years old, 85, why aren't you using your name? I said, well, using Mark Weber. No, you're going to use your Dharma name. And I said, well, and he said, you're a teacher, you're a Lama. So he, I received the teacher, I received the, the, the title Lama from him. But he not only gave me the title, he said to me, I insist that you use that title out of the compassion, even though you don't need to use it for yourself, I insist that you use that title. There's an 80-year-old man sitting on a throne with his finger at me, going, I insist that you use that title for the compassion of all others that need that, because we live in a world of conceptual contrivance. That's compassion. I'm going, why should I do that? I'm living in a Western world. It causes problems. He goes, compassion. Think of those other beings that need that. He said, you're that, so that's what you're going to wear. Okay, got the message. He's lovely. He's an absolutely extraordinary being. So we need the conceptual contrivances at a higher order, at a higher order, at a higher order, like differential equations to handle thermodynamics, until it's natural. You don't walk around saying, I'm a Buddhist Lama, 
I'm a Buddhist. You don't have to. Right? But it might really help a lot. And what I've discovered over the years, why I teach what I do, is that people that meditate that haven't taken refuge have so many impediments to the path that, that I introduce it for their benefit, not for mine. It's indispensable. So for someone to say, I'm a Buddhist, may be the best thing in the world. It's fantastic. Because they're devoted to something. The question is, what are they devoted to? So next topic, merit. Merit. This is... Uh, I think we're only just missing Cheryl. Yes, okay. She doesn't need to hear this. It's, it's a very secret pith instruction. There are... Oh, it's finished. That was it. It was, it was one sentence. There's, there's two things that we do all the way along the path to full Buddhahood. Two. Isn't that easy? Two. Can you remember two? There's two things that we're going to do that all of this is under the umbrella of. We're going to be accumulating merit and we're going to be accumulating wisdom moments. That's it. But if we don't have enough merit, which means strength in, in Sanskrit or Pali, or uh, punya, or punya, if we don't have the strength, like the calculus, we can't handle aspects of the teaching. That's why we have grades in a school system. Well, that's not the only reason. I don't want to get to talk about the school system. But there, there are reasons why we have grade 11 math and then grade 12 math. And, and I, I know personally, because I, 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 I skipped from grade 9 to grade 13. So I, I know there's holes in my head from, from skipping uh, a lot, uh, deficiencies. And there's reasons why we take a graduated path in mathematics and chemistry and biology to handle the concepts. And that's strength. That's out of compassion. Most of us in the room when we were teenagers could actually handle university. Well, many, many could. But the deficiencies in understanding can get in the way. Does that make sense? So to travel the path of Dharma, or Buddhism, Dharma, one needs strength. Where are we going to get that strength from? And that's called merit. So the normal word that's used is merit, merit. Like having a treasure of it, a treasure vault, or a treasure vase full of gold and jewels. One needs a lot of gold and jewels to get across the country. You know, if you set out in 400 years ago, if you set out from Italy, from Rome, to get to London, what do you think you needed? Really good fortune. And you needed money. You needed to bribe your way through. You needed to get through all those little kingdoms. And what else did you need? You needed a pass. Like today we have a passport. In those days you needed to get a pass 
and a seal from the kingdom to get through. It usually required a very good bribe. Not just, hi, I'm a really friendly person from Rome and I'm trying to get to England. Uh, no, it required uh, money to lubricate the past. This word merit keeps getting, get, keeps getting misunderstood by lots of practitioners. I'm doing good things, therefore I'm gaining merit for the path. Not it's kind of misunderstood. You can do all the good things in the world, but it's not actually pointed enough to Dharma. You can be really generous with your children or generous with sharing out your car or loaning out your VCR or sharing your home and that's pretty good merit but it's not heaping up the strength one needs for Dharma. And this is all to do with cause and effect. So think about what you'd have to do to build up strength around traversing the path of Dharma based on the law of cause and effect. It's kind of like a thermodynamics class without the differential equations. It is mysterious, isn't it? What would you do? You have to bring about objects of strength that are, that are, that are actually Dharma objects. Teachers, books, places, and community. That's how merit is built in Dharma. So in other words, it's just cause and effect. If you think about other things all day, and not the Dharma, that's what you get. If you think about how you can serve people in terms of liberation, that's what you get. see puzzled looks. Cool. And I see someone scratching their head on the, on the, over the area where that would be a question in the brain. <coughs> right there. Going like this. I'm going, okay, that's a pretty good sign. Exactly right in the spot. That you... It's all to do with cause and effect. If you serve dharma, that is you serve beings in unfolding in dharma, it builds strength. If you just serve at your local restaurant, I'll give you an example. Ah, from the other day. We were in a cafe. I'll recommend it. Why not? Bellar Cafe on Georgia Street in Vancouver. Superb. And there was three lovely young people there making coffees behind the, the uh, espresso machine. And they're serving people, aren't they? They're being generous, they're being friendly, and they're serving people coffee. Isn't that merit? Isn't that strength? Isn't that generosity? It is, but it's not sufficient for liberation. Why? Because the mental intent behind it isn't actually engaging in the person or the object of sufficient strength to bring about the, the wish for the liberation of others and themselves. This is the difference. Okay, so let, me, let me try to button this up if I can. 
If you were now, I'm not asking you to, but if you were now to do three prostrations and you just did them, blind faith, just, yeah, okay. It doesn't have the strength of knowing why one's doing it. And for instance, while you're doing it, wishing all sentient people and all beings in this room becoming enlightened swiftly. Do you see the difference? So we do an act. The act is we do three prostrations. It's very typical if you're a Buddhist. Three prostrations to a Buddha figure. That itself doesn't constitute merit. It's a physical exercise. It can be a little bit of, of humility, yes, which is good. It can uh, help you be humble. It can help you be respectful. But actually, it doesn't really have that much oomph. Are you, are you getting it? Not much oomph. What would have a lot more oomph is if internally or out loud you say, by doing this, I am training and wishing, training and wishing, that I and all other people have the ability to liberate, as the Buddha did, countless sentient beings. Then you do the postures. That is merit. That would be merit. Picking up the Buddha figure and elevating it because it's giving it honor would, he, would also be merit. Did you see what I'm saying? That is not just respect, it's an understanding of cause and effect. So, if I do 100,000 full prostrations to that Buddha figure, and I don't know what I'm doing, but I've just been told do 100,000, that's not anywhere near as much merit as if every time I do it, I go, I'm doing this with all sentient beings, I'm doing it for sentient beings, Actually, I'm going to become that. I'm going to become not that figure. I'm going to become Buddha nature. I'm going to reveal it. And I'm going to reveal it for every single sentient being because my heart is full of compassion and I want everybody to be liberated. Now we're talking merit. And we're talking gobs of merit. Does that make sense? And this is really misunderstood. The act is not the same as the understanding. It's the, under, it's the mental intent that builds, not the act. I can build all the muscles in the world I want with bicycling. What am I doing? Is it for competition? No. I want, I want, that's not just it. So it's not the number of faithful things one does, it's whether the understanding is deepening all the time about what the point is of liberation. That builds merit. So something like providing service to allow this teaching to happen. Financial, physical, mental energy to make this teaching this weekend happen is good merit. Why? It's a complete, clear activity of helping people liberate. That make sense? Coming to the class and listening and also providing support to make sure the class happens is even better. Mary. Back to the baristas. Um, if, if the um, girl behind the counter had said, uh, somehow internally, may you be free from suffering when she gave the person his coffee, 
Is that what you're getting at? Uh, thank you. Absolutely. I was going to just, just do that. That's wonderful. Exactly. Every single coffee becomes a prostration. Every single coffee becomes an act of contemplation. And therefore, the day is not wasted. And they're not looking at their watch and going, is it five yet? Is it five yet? Can I get out of here? No. They're working, and they're secretly practicing at the same time. And they're building merit. Every single coffee cup that they're offering is a Buddha realm. Every single coffee cup they're offering is full of dharma. It's a bowl of dharma. Every single time they offer it, they do three, may, not just may you be well and happy, which doesn't have as much merit. That means may you be happy. Nice. May you be free completely of suffering immediately, soon. You see the power? And then the mind goes to do that. Do it a couple hundred thousand times. It's okay to say a mantra. Omani pay me hong, omani pay me hong, the mantra of Chen raising. Omani pay me hong, omani pay me hong, omani pay me hong. It can feel good. If you actually know what the mantra means, it means uh, embodying the quality of the unity of wisdom and compassion, liberating all beings. Something like that. If that's actually what's on your mind while you're saying it, and you're now trying to embody it, that's a million fold more powerful than Omani pay me hong, Omani pay me hong. Omani pay me hong, Omani pay me hong, Omani pay me hong. And feeling kind of good because you're you blocked your thoughts and kind of vibrating. That's not why we do it. We want embodiment. So what you say internally is what you embody. What you do externally is what you embody. This is the calculus. This is the math of it. And are you, are you building neural pathways? Yes, you are. And that's been demonstrated. You can build the muscle of compassion. You can build the muscle of altruism. It's been demonstrated. Uh, that, I would say, there's enough scientific evidence that, that, that yes, that's true. We, we, know, we know that. We know that experientially, and we know that scientifically. It's exactly what you're doing. You're building neural connections. And that's from your intent. From your intent. And study, study, contemplate, listen, study, read, contemplate, practice, and you build vast neural connections. That's why we do these practices, and they get more complicated. Not because teachers want them more complicated, because the the, the brain and the heart can handle more. Let me, give you, let me just try this out. Here's, a, here's some homework for lunch. Can you visualize an infinite number of beings turning into liberated beings? Try that. An infinite number of beings turning into uh, full Buddhas. Cognitively, that's a tough challenge. There's an infinite number of beings just on, on the surface of our bodies alone here in this room. That's what? That's be about a trillion. How many people? About 35, 40? So that's that's uh, 40 trillion beings on the surface alone. 
cognitively, that's a challenge. But just imagine if you can get your head around that and your heart around that. You see? So you have to start somewhere. You start with a few. And traditionally, we start with one. We start with somebody, traditionally in the East, you start with your mother. Dicey in the West. <laughs> Dicey. Dicey, dicey, dicey in the West. But traditionally, you start with your mother, and you place your mother mentally before you, and you feel compassion, and you direct all your blessings and energy towards that being. And then, and then, and then it goes out further and further. In Southeast Asia, during the Buddha's time and other time, and for about three or four hundred years, it wasn't your mother. This is interesting, eh? Cultural changes? It wasn't your mother. You pick your teacher, because your teacher was the most honored being. Today, today some people go, I, I can't do that with my mother. That's not where I want to start. And my father. And I'm not going to start with my friends. And I'm not going to start with any politicians. And I don't know who to start with. That's a joke. Okay? If we don't build merit, we don't actually have strength to study Dharma. So we build merit bit by 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 bit. And as my lovely root teacher, Antal Rinpoche, said not so long ago, Never, ever, ever think you have enough merit. Ever. Because the ocean of dharma is, is, is incomprehensibly vast in terms of the skill of compassion that's needed to liberate beings. So where does merit use for? The skill required to liberate beings is a, is a profound training. And we need strength. Human beings that are confused and creatures that are confused, like a rabid dog. Is that clear enough? Like a rabid dog, confused, is a very dangerous creature for themselves and others. And bringing people out of their danger, their harm, requires great skill and a great heart of compassion, of knowledge. Knowledge. Make sense? Knowledge. Knowledge. In 15 minutes. Is that fairly, does that help, help you? We need lots of merit. Otherwise, we, we, we get disheartened. We get great doubt. We lose our faith in what we're doing, and we need great strength. And we need good physical strength, too. So I advise all of you, if I don't see you again, go, go do a discipline where your body uh, gains flexibility and health. Yoga, find a good teacher of yoga, uh, good teacher of Qigong, good teacher of Feldenkrais, whatever it is uh, that, that has a lot of awareness built into it. So there's certain things I'm not recommending. You can see I'm saying I'm not talking about running. I'm talking about very traditional practices that produce internal organ massage, uh, real heightened awareness and energy. So we have a good, healthy body in which to do these practices. We need a good body. We need a healthy body. If we have an ill body, we need a lot of strength. So it's really nice to have a healthy body that's flexible, feels good, feels warm, feels good, and can contain the practice of, of the Dharma. It helps. Okay. And that too is merit. That too is merit. Any final questions before this evening? Yeah. Do you recommend that people 
requested a list of the names of everyone who wishes to come tomorrow. If there are people who won't be sure on their decision till this evening's class, is it okay if that is Oh, sure. Sure. I, I'm following an old, a very old tradition where when, um, if, I, if I give refuge, I don't do it lightly as a ceremony. And it's a personal thing where we have a connection. Not, not that you're my, not that I'm your, necessarily your teacher, but I am uh, become the person that has given you refuge. In that sense, when I give you a name, like baptism, like, like a name, a Dharma name, I want to do it personally, which means I want to know who the person, I want the name, which is actually about all I need. And I don't want to just do it out of a hat. Do you know what I mean? So, so I actually like, and I also like to know that person's made the, uh, it feels good. You see, the reason traditionally you give a class before you take refuge, I give a class, is I want you to feel good about what you're doing, not just take refuge and say, oh good, now I'm, now I'm a Buddhist, or now I've taken refuge, and, and I've taken the Bodhisattva vow, and I have a Dharma name. I want you to feel that you're going to take this on. And you feel good because you've heard about it, you've heard an explanation of it, which is tonight, and, and these classes. And you go, yeah, I want to do that. I want to actually go a little more serious than I have, a little more in-depth, and take on a very ancient tradition. That, by the way, you can still go to church. That's true. You can still go to church. You can be a Buddhist and still go to church. I, I you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. I, I can't get out of that. <laughs> Although I, I think I was. I heard I was excommunicated by my rabbi when I grew up because I had become a monk. I'm not a monk now. I was for a time. Which he can't do. But he tried. <laughs> but you see, so, so being a Buddhist is... Um, doesn't mean you can't do other things. It's actually way deeper than that. It's a commitment to full liberation. But you actually could be. Um, you could go to church. Why not? But you see, sometimes what happens when you cross disciplines is it, it, go, it all this doubt festers. And that's why people, people, people today go, I start with this teacher, I start with that teacher, I start with this tradition, and then I start with that tradition, and I start with that tradition, and all of a sudden they don't really do much at all. But actually, to take refuge is to take refuge. And uh, that doesn't mean that you can't do other things. level, Catherine, will be outside the door now, for those of you that wish to uh, add your name to the list. And if anyone then decides this evening to add to the list, you'll have a chance then. But if you know now, we'd appreciate your name now. And if you decide tomorrow morning when you wake up, <laughs> that's okay too. Yes. I mean, but I just like, I like people to uh, be, how, what's the word, non-frivolous about this. Um, I've decided over the years, as my teacher, my root teacher did, that when refuge is done, it's among his students. You know what I mean? It's done in a way that's not just to gather students or just to spread the word of Buddhism. It's actually something people mature into it and they go, you know, I'd like to take on the, I'd like to take on a deeper appreciation and practice of the tradition. Which means, I'm, and, and when you hear it tonight, you'll see. 
It's about understanding the outer, the inner, the secret, the most secret level of taking refuge. And it's very beautiful. So that's, that's why I like, I like to do it this way. Yes? Is there any benefit to retake? I've already taken my precepts. To retake them, is there any reason for that? Or once you oh, a hundred, a hundred times, a thousand times. Oh yeah, a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand times. Anytime you get an opportunity to take refuge with a, a teacher that you have an affinity with is a wonderful opportunity to just refresh. You may not get a new, you can get 20 Dharma name, you know, but, it, but generally say, oh, I've got one, thanks. But it's a time where you go, wow, I can, I can re-say this again. You're stating it publicly when you say, Namo Tassa Bhagavato or Budang Saradang Gachami. You're saying it out loud. And if you take the Bodhisattva precepts, we say it out loud with your Dharma name in there. It's a declaration to your community, to everybody. This is what I'm going to do. You can do it 100,000 times. And there's, you know, there's very famous teachers that went around, and they, they, every time they had a new teacher, they took refuge. They wanted refuge under that teacher. In the same way that when uh, His Eminence Chobhi Rinpoche gave me you know, the title Lama, he actually also uh, changed, uh, not completely, he added to my name. He added his name. So, so uh, this is quite normal to, it was a bit like a refuge ceremony. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's very good, it's very good to, to keep taking, taking refuge. Just, just ups that power, that merit. It's quite good. Okay, lunchtime. By this uh, powerful activity, this point in, in, in Pali, it's called punyakama, powerful karma, powerful causality. By this powerful causality, may it lead to the result, which is the full flowering of Buddhahood in all sentient beings. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangho tu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangho tu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangho tu. May all beings be healthy and well, and may all beings be established in a continuum of perfect realization of the unity of wisdom and compassion. Good. Well, thank you. It was a, a delight. <laughs>